Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Happy Halloween to all of our loyal and fanatical listeners. This is Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the pod blacklisted by God, the talk that has Jesus worried about his flock, and a sumptuous Samhain to you, Travis. Uh, we watch. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, in case you're observing, we watch a movie or two every Halloween with heavy demonic and or diabolic themes. And what are we watching this time? What are we talking about? So this film, the title may be a little on the nose for this podcast, but here it is: the blood on Satan's claw. When the grave of the devil is disturbed by the plow, the satanic essence of evil wreaks violent and revolting revenge. But it weren't human, sir. There were fur. Then it was an animal's remains. It were more like some fiend. And the evil grows quickly, attacking first the youth of the village and making them the devil's children. Half, look, look. Oh, God, I prayed I'd never see that again. That's what they call the devil's skin. Doctor, witchcraft is dead and discredited. Are you bent on reviving forgotten horrors? How do we know, sir, what is dead? Blood on Satan's Claw. So, Klaus, I'm curious, would you recommend this gem of a movie to a friend? Why or why not? Well, I did recommend it to you, but I guess we have a sort of particular interest in cranking out content on things devil-related, so maybe that's not a fair answer. Yeah, if they were into horror movies, I would. I wouldn't just recommend it for... Like, if, if people really didn't like horror movies, I wouldn't insist that they have to see this one. Um, <laughs> but gen- a general general pro, I mean, as we'll, as we'll discuss, I have some issues with the film, but uh, yeah. Wow. Okay, I have to say I'm very surprised. I am a dabbler in horror. This is much more your genre than mine, but I do like horror. And I would say that as far as storytelling, which I feel is very important in the genre... I feel like we fell down on our faces a couple of times. Is it creepy? Yes. For atmosphere, I think we we get there. I think there's some surprising humor in it. So, yeah, I guess in the end, I would recommend it with reservations, only to horror fans, and especially to people who are up for an older film. I think, oh yeah, all that, I think all that goes, that that should be taken for granted. Um... Yeah, but if you if you don't like anything made before like uh, Lord of the Rings, then yeah, you probably shouldn't watch it. Um, <laughs> but, but I think yeah, there there are major plot issues, and this is sort of jumping ahead a second. But like, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that the original treatment or idea for the movie was as an anthology, and not as a single story, which, to me, carries across a lot like i i get that having watched it and then heard oh this was supposed to be like three or four stories that were not the same story i'm like oh yeah totally that's why we have four protagonists but i think atmospherically it's good i think the horror movies so many of them are very bad that um they get there's a candy cap (laughs) and so i think if you are an aficionado you do expect some 
some jankiness, some suboptimal elements in the film, whether that's because of budget, whether because of uh, genre conventions or whatever. But yeah, all that taken in mind, kept in mind. Yeah, it it's yeah like a qualified qualified pass yeah cool all right well let's talk a little bit about the production and then get into the genre of the film which i knew nothing about i'm looking forward to chatting with you a little bit about folk horror later on but first i wanted to mention that the original working title of this masterwork is devil's touch satan's skin and i i feel that would have been more honest a little bit because I don't, I don't know. What do you think, Klaus? The blood on Satan's claw. It's not so much about claws as it is about fur and skin. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, there are claws, as we'll get to. There are claws. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Oh, right. But, okay, that's a good point. I forgot about that moment. Mm-hmm. But you're right. The major plot f- focuses on uh, the skin, I think. And I think those are two separate titles uh different working titles um, one was de- originally devil's touch kind of boring satan's skin yeah alliteration go for it yeah you know uh but yeah i, um, I liked it better as one title so i'm gonna suggest that they redo the working title and put them together like i did because it's better you're welcome everyone yeah you're right that actually is cool thank devil's you devil's touch satan's skin See? yeah it that's, works that's cool oh well yeah anyway yeah, yeah 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 they didn't for some reason they didn't consult me in the early 70s i'm not really sure why uh i was definitely oh okay i guess i didn't exist yet but anyway the film was <laughs> directed by piers haggard based on a screenplay treatment by robbery win simmons apologies to everyone for slaughtering the pronunciation of your names Uh, And when Simmons envisioned the movie as an anthology, which we've talked about already a little bit, but it does make me feel a lot better about some of the storytelling points and the way that maybe leaving things open for connections to other films in the anthology, that does help explain some of what we'll talk about. Fun fact, apparently when Simmons was inspired such a funny choice of words inspired by the Manson murders. Gosh, inspiration. Yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the anxieties and paranoia about youth culture that manifests in this film. But yeah, to say something about the genre that it is typically assigned in, uh, which is folk horror coming out of great Britain, especially. And I think the genre is, referencing the sort of back to nature uh, movement that's happening in the 60s and 70s with the counterculture, uh, general interest in all things rural and peasant, the the rise of folk music is a, is a perfect example of this, or the way like Led Zeppelin's always putting these like Tolkien bits of imagery into the songs. There's a lot of, yeah, like Middle Earth gone wrong, the Shire gone wrong vibes in... <laughs> in the the blood on satan's claw and and the genre i think but yeah all this is part of a kind of i think a effervescence or like an enthusiasm for the search for authenticity pre-christian pre-modern authenticity a romantic kind of current and then this you like you just add in like the sort of scary parts of folklore and you have a lot of this genre right there but it's a lot of dichotomies, right? City life, dark, muddy truths of the countryside, this sort of clash. 
You know, I think what surprises me is that there's this search for, in a kind of romantic sense, as you pointed out, a search for connection to nature, connection to pre-Christian Britain and its folklore, its mythology. What I find strange about that is that horror often has this moralizing, uh, I suppose, Judeo-Christian element that underlies a lot of, let's say, slasher films, for example, right? Who gets killed first? The teenagers who have sex. Who gets, you know, and then, of course, the shades of racism that come after that as well. Um, But here, while there's a desire on the one hand to kind of rid ourselves, we want a tabla rasa of, um, from the kind of contemporary moral ideologies that this, you know, 60s and 70s were attempting to push against, which had been structured so much by Christianity, Protestant Christianity, evangelical Christianity, we seem not to be able to fully abandon that in this film. So I find that sort of mix very interesting. Yeah, I think there's a there's a great quote from this piece in The Guardian by this uh, author, Andrew Michael Hurley, about, about uh, folk horror that I think fits into what you're saying. Um, I'll just read it. That we've been diminished in some way by swapping the rituals of small community for the rituals of global capitalism feels true. But since rural utopias always turn rotten in folk horror, they do not hold the solution to a better way of living. Rather, it's through the experience of seeing them unmasked that we are awakened to the struggle we're embroiled in here and now. Individuals in folk horror are shown to be so weak against much bigger forces, religious, political, or preternatural, that they run the risk of being crushed entirely or else they become the force, which is perhaps the greatest horror of all. And and uh, the same author talks about how the sort of the nihilism, the darkness of the uh, rotting utopia of the rural life is also a lot of times this critique of folksy or folkish nationalism and jingoism. So it's it's both playing off of the the interest in in pre-Christian, pre-modern, uh, age of Aquarius kind of authenticity, uh, but also then uncovering the sort of evil hippie dimension to all that, that you can, you can go, you can go for all that stuff and then be like an anti-vaxxer QAnoner kind of thing. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of what we're getting. And I, and I think what you, what I heard you saying is maybe, uh, the blood on Satan's claw doesn't actually totally pull off all of those moves because there is a a constant maintenance of patriarchy throughout the film that does tie into the sort of conservative Christian values that I heard you speaking about. Absolutely. So Klaus, some of the other classics of this genre, should we name drop a few of them? Yeah. uh, One I really like, Penda's Fen, which you can watch on YouTube queer Bildungsroman story. Uh, pretty amazing. Amazing this was on British public television in the 1980s or 1970s. Like, totally, totally amazing. But also The Wicker Man, which is, I think, like, the really acknowledged classic of the genre. Christopher Lee, I think, starred in it for free. He was so enthused about the project. Witchfinder General, which is really freaky, and which uh, one of the actors in this film is is also in. Um, but like on the American side of the pond, Children of the Corn, and I think Blair Witch has a lot of this too. Have you have you seen Midsummer? We, same director Ari Aster as as um, and, uh, Hereditary, which we watched last year. But Midsummer is also like a big 
homage to especially wicker man yeah no i'd like to see midsummer there's always next year's halloween special i guess yeah yeah for sure okay travis i think we're at the part of the podcast where we need to actually talk about a little bit what happens in this film so maybe get us started on that yeah absolutely so first we zero in on our young peasant youth named ralph who is minding his own business plowing a field like you do, you know, it's important, plow that field, Uh, you want to eat, you got to plow the field. And he makes an unpleasant discovery. He steps closer and to see what's happening. And you see like what looks like part of some sort of freaky, fiendish face. You see definitely an eyeball. And there's definitely a worm that's crawling across it. It's, it's very intense. He's not sure what to do. So he runs where does he go the local authority right so the uh judge is visiting aunt banham and i told i have to admit i don't really remember her at all so later it's you know klaus you're gonna have to take over and describe auntie banham because i i don't know who that is so ralph goes and talks to the judge like you just said and the judge is played by patrick weimark who actually stars in one of the other uh, folk horror classics we discussed the Witchfinder general i think he's oliver cromwell or something in it other people who were considered for the role were peter cushing you know the guy in charge of the death star from star wars 4 uh christopher lee famous as dracula this guy patrick weimark not quite that b movie star power but had some big roles uh dies very young he's only 44 when this film gets made which is like the year of his death he looks he looks I don't know if this is good makeup or hard living. The guy looked older than that to me. What, what, <laughs> no, no, not to speak ill of the dead on, um, you know, all souls day adjacent uh, podcasting. Um, but anyway, yeah, this, this is, this is who the judge is, uh, Patrick Weimark. And he is not only a judge, he's also kind of a skeptic. Uh, he's he's dismissive of Ralph's inquiries. He constantly is harping on how Ralph is wasting his time because it's so effing valuable. <laughs> um, so next we focus in on another set of characters. We've got the nephew, Peter, and his fiance Rosalind. And Peter is this sort of foppish kind of guy. He is in line to inherit. Um, And so, you know, he's of a certain social class and that's a problem because his fiance Rosalind just does not meet the standards of his aunt. Oh, I remember her now. Yes. She's the disapproving aunt. Right. So, oh yeah, I guess Peter is orphaned or something since he's going to his aunt and uncle for all this. This is, this doesn't really seem to be discussed. (laughs) Oh, well, one one assumes that his parents are not in the picture for whatever reason. Um, But his, uh, engagement to Rosalind is ill-fated, as we will see. Um, one of Klaus's favorite moments I want to I want to give him space to describe is when Rosalind encounters her overly passive beau going down the stairs from the attic. So, what happens there, Klaus, and what draws you to this moment? Well, so yeah, uh, something to keep in mind is that Rosalind and Peter are supposed to have a a, uh, I don't know, <laughs> an amorous, an amorous moment, a tryst um, at 11 o'clock. The judge detains Peter to just like sort of like talk about 
Bewaring the Wiles of Women confesses that he had a thing for Peter's aunt who's hosting him right now. That's right. Yes. He toasts uh, King James III in exile, smashes the glass of brandy or, or whatever they're drinking. Um, and then we see Rosalind, who has been like, like shunted off to the attic because like it's the only proper place for her to be sleeping. Um, there's all of these clothes hanging up in the attic that are the clothing that was the clothing of the deceased uncle. So we have like this sort of spectral leftovers of, of the patriarch in the attic. And then something scary starts happening. She's freaked out. She's screaming. We don't see a lot. It's a little, it's a little unclear what's happening. Uh, but Peter's on his way up for his tete-a-tete with Rosalind and she's freaking out. And the everyone who's older, the judge and the aunt, are like, we just got to lock her in. She's gone crazy. <laughs> um, and the aunt goes in to try to talk sense into the screaming girl and the aunt's slapping her around. The judge is slapping Peter around. And so the next morning, the judge is like, we got to send in the the people who catch and capture the lunatics from Bedlam Asylum um, to take her away. And so she's being led down the stairs at this moment. And like Peter like is just sort of like hanging out. Like, I don't know what he's going to say. The judge is like, oh, it's all for the best. You know, she was crazy. You couldn't have married her. Um, they were supposed to get married the next day. <laughs> so he's a little broken up about it. And so he kind of like smiles at her as she's being led off to like an asylum for the rest of her life. Um, think, a key plot detail, this takes place in the early 18th century. Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of how mentally ill people are addressed and handled and, and sort of treated as human beings. They're not really treated as human beings. So yeah, that's a thing. And so he smiles at her and she gives him like this demented smile, like scary demented smile. And you're kind of like, oh, I guess maybe she has had a breakdown. And then you get a, like a glimpse of her hand and it's just like this bony claw. Um, and I, I thought that that was a pretty, again, like we're going to like the last episode, many spoilers ahead. Uh, we're not going to go into every, like nook and cranny of the plot but yeah scary bony claw action yeah i didn't like this moment because i felt it let us off the hook for some sort of uh uncomfortable encounter with women who are considered crazy in the early 18th century where we could have just held that that difficult place that sense of discomfort and questions about what's going to happen to her but instead she gives us this demented smile and shows us that she has a bony paw with claws and it's like oh she's a monster okay we don't have to feel bad you know what i mean so um i mean you know we just seemed very excused for the awful way we were treating her and you know sending her off to bedlam um so then peter after all this happens and she's let off and but she's you know a monster Peter has this great idea that he will have just a solo slumber party this time in the haunted attic. Not sure I remember exactly what his excuse was. I mean, didn't he have a perfectly good bedroom? Is he trying to like Miss Marple this and figure out what's going on in the attic? I don't remember. But in any in any case, uh, he gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar, if you will. This is not good. Um, this is not good at all. So he, something freaky deaky happens in the attic and his hand 
he he looks and a hand is on his throat and it's hairy and has claws on it it looks a lot like what Rosalind's hand looked like um but it's on his throat in a threatening manner and so what does he do he's gotta he's gotta attack this this claw that is threatening his life so he cuts it off which seems like a really good idea at the time but later we see that actually that monstrous hand has just become his hand and a human hand that's been severed is sitting on the bloody bed which is i mean disturbing to say the least right yeah 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 that moment is scary and it is like sort of (laughs) he's it's sort of like the funny special effects of the film where it's like we just have this monster's hand and so the hands like coming up from the floor and that's what freaks him out um and meanwhile when aunt bannum went in to try to get rosalind she had the bony claw and she she slashed the aunt's face oh right yeah the aunt's not feeling very well and then she just disappears so (laughs) and and the judge is like let loose the dogs we'll find her you know and and they they can't find anything and so rosalind in like five minutes rosalind is gone forever from this film the Anne is gone forever those those plot points are never resolved (laughs) so so yeah the anthology thing is, is is in play i think there um but now things things are starting to get bad right um and so the judge just leaves uh, he doesn't. He doesn't disappear from the film uh, like these other characters we've been talking about. Yeah, right. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, but he just leaves. Um, uh, he has got to go into the city or something for for business. He's very he's a very important man. Okay, how do how does this relate to racial politics in the United States, Klaus? You had this brilliant idea, right? Oh, I don't know if it's so brilliant, but he's like he's in the carriage and he's like, well, I'll be back. I'm gonna fix this. Things are going to get bad, but we have to let them get really bad. And that's the only way for them to be resolved. Uh, and I think that um, Clarence Thomas has, from what I understand, a, a, a theory of, of, of white supremacy in the United States, whereby it's actually better for the black patriarch when things are really bad from white people versus being coddled and and uh, nannied by the nanny state. And so like you ha- things are actually at their most noble and moral problems are clear moral and political problems are clearer when things are really bad so enter angel blake one of our very interesting characters and her gang of ne'er-do-well kids right yeah let's talk a little bit about angel blake angel blake so these kids are seen playing around the same field where uh where uh, ralph dug up the fiend one thing we forgot to mention is that Ralph goes and shows the judge where the fiend was supposed to be, but the fiend is gone. It's like, okay. It's because this thing is like, just like a, like a mashed up part of a body. And so the kids are playing around there. You don't see the fiend's face, but they like, they find a claw, you know, big problem in the film named the blood on Satan's claw. Uh, If you find the claw in that film, you should probably stay away from it. But yeah. So then we see them. They're at Sunday school with uh, another church handsome, chansome man, the curate, Reverend Fallowfield. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad pun. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, he's got some. Fa- he's I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll leave that on the table. But yeah, he's trying to teach these kids about about the story of Ruth and Boaz. These, a bunch of like horny teenagers. Like, what's going on with this Ruth and Boaz story, Travis? Like, yeah. how does that fit into the story? 
Yeah, so Ruth and Boaz is a funny narrative in the book of Ruth in the Hebrew Bible. And Ruth and Naomi are, uh, they're strangers in a strange land. Um, and they're, all their menfolk die and they have to go find their way to somebody's home. And so Ruth is from the Israelites, right? And so they go back to hang out with her people and try to find some distant relatives who will take them in. And they come upon this guy, Boaz, who thinks that she's hot. And so he lets her gather wheat from the field that after it's been harvested, there's like leftovers. And he's like, you, yeah, take this. And he gives her some some more food to make sure she's well taken care of and her mother-in-law as well, uh, Naomi. So the moment in this little Bible study <laughs> Uh, that we're focusing on is how, uh, why Boaz is so kind to her. Curate Fallowfield asks the class why Boaz, you know, favored this woman, why he was so nice to her, why he was generous to her. And the cheeky response from one of the lads in the class is, why, he were a man and she were a woman. In other words, you know, he was hot for her. And Curate Fallowfield gets uncomfortable with this and corrects him and says, no, that's not, that's not why, you wicked little boy. Uh, it was the will of God that he knew of her. Now, I don't totally know what the good curate means here, actually, other than God's will had something to do with these two getting together. Um, knowing someone in the biblical sense might be implied here. Not totally sure. Um, but I suppose the lesson is that you shouldn't always just follow the desires of your loins, but sometimes God intends for desire between a particular man and woman. So we're just basically in Sunday school getting to talk about sex and giggle a little bit, but this is an important precursor for what's going to happen with Angel and the accusation. Um, but Klaus, first, what's your take on this little Bible study moment? It's My take is that they were trying to blend some sex ed into uh, catechism study time. <laughs> that was my take <laughs> in the 18th That's century. Amazing. Um, yeah, the story itself of Ruth and Boaz has low-key incest vibes. They're, they're related. Uh, but its usage here is more about pointing to both the questionable exegesis of the good curate and the wily hormone-driven compulsion of the youth. And this is a preoccupation of the film, uh, youth culture. Uh, it's an important backdrop for understanding Angel's, later in the plot, her attempted seduction of the curate and her, later when she accuses him of rape. Uh, so um, Angel, by through exposure to the claws of Satan, starts leading a coven of kids who uh, sacrifice other kids. Um, and we'll get into the actual mechanics of how, what, why she's killing people in a few minutes. But anyway, in the middle of all this, she shows up to the church in like a nightgown and even like sort of takes off even more, <laughs> uh, trying to seduce uh, Fallowfield. <laughs> Fallowfield. <laughs> she, but she's like, I'm going to seduce him and I'm also going to get him to join our gang of hoodlum cultists coven members um this seems like a really bad plan like i can see where she's like okay like maybe maybe we'll we'll uh we'll hook up but like that this square was going to join the the cult like really like i don't know like i i, I don't see it um so yeah well but you know klaus in in as we've talked about in our you know desert monasticism conversations the devil likes to go for holy men they're just like you know 
they're a, they got a target on their back. They've they've shown themselves to be the sort of high prize they're for the devil. Too so. too damn chansome, you know, just too too chansome for for words. Too chansome, yeah. too chansome. Yeah. So yeah. So the curate has a vexed relationship with Angel Blake. So like they touched some stuff in this field, and then they all go bad. Uh, and there's these scenes in the movie where like Angel just like stares weirdly at people. She has like these weird kind of blue green eyes. And when she stares at you, you start getting really itchy or pained. And then in the spot where she stared at, you grow a patch of weird hair. <laughs> so hence, hence the original title, the, the, the Satan skin or, or whatever. Um, and so Angel's coven, they like, they trick you into playing blind man's bluff and then they kill you and they amputate the part of your skin that had the patch of hair and they're trying to do a big hairy jigsaw puzzle to make the demon fiend we saw part of in the first frames of the film. So that's like the major device for incarnating the evil in the film. Uh, there's no real explanation for why these kids went crazy to begin with. They just like touched the remains and then they were like, oh, I know what we have to do. We have to start killing folks. I'm not sure if they were they're possessed, brainwashed bored or this is just what youth does pagan youth does without the patriarchal a clerical or stately hand of fatherly violence to keep them in check i don't know yeah there are a lot of unanswered questions in the mechanics of this demonic activity going on in this town um one of my questions is sort of what's the backstory of this fiend body part lying in the field if we sort of imagine a pre-story to how this all happened, was it a kind of botched attempt at resurrecting the demon or creating the demon through this amalgam of hairy jigsaw puzzle pieces, perhaps? Um, and the discard somehow of this former project got got plowed into a field. I don't I don't really know. Um, but here we are. Here we are. In, in this. <laughs> this is this is the this is the reality we're living in. <laughs> this is the world that we are in now. So, yeah. And speaking of the field and getting back to that field, I I do love how Ralph just keeps getting blamed for doing his damn job, which is plowing the field. He's like literally Protestant, you know, work ethic. He's doing the thing he was asked to do, and through doing that you know, all these horrors come upon the town. I don't want to read too much into it, but it seems perhaps we're suggesting that evil is inevitable in this particular society. There's no sort of getting around it. What do you, what's your take, Klaus? Yeah, I mean, it's really funny where like, Ralph, if you hadn't plowed that damn field, it's, <laughs> that's literally what he gets paid to do. <laughs> and it was the ants field too. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's right. Like we have the, the, the old man, the dead old man's clothes in the attic floating around whenever skeletal claws come creeping to slash throats. And then we have this uh, skeleton in the field instead of skeleton in the closet. Um, I wonder, hot take, maybe the demon is the uncle. Maybe that's the key to the whole, the whole problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's why his clothes are up there. The body's in the field. If they could put those two together, maybe he'd be happy and stop demanding human sacrifices. I don't know. Mic drop. That's the end of this pod. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> that was amazing. Uh... <laughs>
okay, so let's get back to Peter of the Lacey Cuffs, Klaus. What happens next with Peter? So Ralph's love interest, Kathy, mm-hmm. goes down the crooked path that leads to Angel Blake doing some elective surgery. Oh, Kathy. In an abandoned church. Yes. Kathy, Kathy, yeah. And Peter, who's still in the picture, even though he cut off his hand, he's still wearing these lacy cuffs around. It's like a little bit, it's it's a little bit uh, grotesque. The, the sort of the length and laciness of his cuffs. And you see them sort of flapping as he's sort of riding his horse to go. He, like He's like, finally, this is enough. Like, Four or five, like, children have been murdered. Now is the time to go ask the judge what he's been thinking this whole time. <laughs> okay, Klaus, but your jealousy of Peter's lacy cuffs is not a cute look for you. I just thought I would mention that. Um, I will, you know, Halloween is coming. You, I will find you a costume that includes lacy cuffs, and you don't have to be jealous of him anymore. Um, I was wondering if those lacy cuffs were meant to be a disguise, like, tied over where his hand used to be um, to kind of distract you. But I don't know. I, I think I think it, my take on it was it was supposed to emphasize that he was missing a hand, which is just the film is like there's cruelties throughout the film, so that's just one more, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, he's finally he's gonna go track down the judge who's like hanging out in Baker Street, like with Doctor Watson and Sherlock Holmes, and and that's what it looks like anyway. <laughs> and he's like, finally, like judge, help me. <laughs> yeah, and then the judge basically agrees that he's going to come back right at that point i don't remember exactly but the judge will be making an appearance soon yeah there's a little bit of a gap here so the judge comes back and starts like torturing people and the judge is like i'm going to use extraordinary measures to root out this this witch's coven he's going to do uh he's going to do this by any means necessary right and is this where we get the rape accusation as well, the judge is back in town, and we have the rape accusation. It kind of happened. I think the rape accusation happens right before the judge gets back, when they find out that Kathy's been killed. It clears the curate because they thought that the curate had killed other people. They thought that he was just responsible for everything, uh, <laughs> including the ra- including the rape, yeah. which is what he was accused of before. And he was like, "Oh, well, if you didn't murder this girl, then you couldn't have raped the other one." Which makes and there's no like sense. no questioning yeah, of that. No, it makes no, no, sense. It makes no sense um, but that's that's fine. That's that's, that's fine. just this film. Yeah. So yeah, the judge is coming back with Peter to eradicate the coven and everything going on with it. Ralph gets on the wrong side of the coven members, and they give him the demon stare. And so then he's got a patch of hair on him too. And so when the judge shows up and the judge is like got vigilantes and a torch bearing mob and like a, uh, a giant helper, like who can't talk, uh, like there's, it's all these sort of like cliches of, of, uh, I don't know, like monster movie dumb. But it's cl- it's clear at this point that the movie is going to end well. Like, what could go wrong? We have vigilantes <laughs> with torches and weapons hunting down children. So it just seems like it's going to a really good place at this point. I'm feeling comforted. Yeah. So Ralph sees the the gang, the mob, and he is. And this is so strange. He's like, the best thing for me to do is to hide because I have the hair. I don't know why he like 
the devil's i guess it's like the devil's mark yeah exactly that's how i read it anyway so where did where does he hide travis well where else would he hide klaus the attic <laughs> seems like such a normal place to go <laughs> nothing bad ever happens in the attic right so he goes there uh but somehow he's abducted uh from the attic and gets in front of this torch-bearing party of vigilantes, which was already ahead of him on the way to the abandoned church. So none of this makes any sense. I cannot explain it. Um, But then things start getting really good. And we have amazing chants um, from the teenagers who were just making up this, you know, witchcraft deviltry as they go. Hail behemoth, spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Hail behemoth, father of my life, speak now come now rise from the forest from the furrows from the fields and live so it's a kind of invocation of for incarnation and life um for this uh this demon and so teenagers are chanting at this abandoned church it's a lot of inversion of christianity going on here both with the chant and then also with the setting of the abandoned church we're reversing everything so you know classic tropes of uh, devil worship, I suppose, that are going on here. And um, so we have this scary ceremony or whatever. And then we have the, uh, we don't see the mechanics of the actual putting together of the hair, sort of the the hairy skin, which would have been interesting because it's all so mysterious. But instead we see like a character from Chuck E. Cheese or McDonald's or something. Um, <laughs> so like a theme park character size uh, that might be an evil teddy bear or gorilla that's almost fully assembled, but is said to be hobbling about on one leg. And that is where um, Ralph comes in. Ralph's leg is afflicted. Is that right? Yeah. So his leg is afflicted yeah, and yeah. he needs, they need his leg to slap it on to evil teddy bear gorilla to have a fully assembled behemoth demon. And so how do we, how do we get there? And and what's going on with the judge Klaus? Well, uh, the way they're going to get, it's like Peter, they're going to get their victim to cut off their own limb. But the way to do this apparently is Ralph's really scared because he got abducted in a way that the film decided it was totally impossible to show how it would work. So he's maybe he's freaked out. I don't know. It's unclear if the behemoth demon did this or Angel Blake. I always love how they say her whole name. Angel Blake. Um, whether Angel Blake did this with her eyes or something. Um, oh, possible. Yeah. But uh, the way they're going to get Ralph to cut off his own leg is they have a, uh, a sexy dancer come yeah. and do a sexy dance yeah. in front of him. And like then he's like, oh, like the, somehow her gyrating hips are what persuade him so that he needs to cut off his leg, which makes no sense. Um <laughs> but so the judge had tortured one of the coven members who gave up the location. And so the judge and the torchbearing party are like kind of sitting there watching this. And the judge is like sort of in full voyeur mode. Yeah. It's like, he thinks it's hot. And then when Ralph is like about to do the cutting, it's like, okay, it's go time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no clear reason what they're waiting for. Exactly. I mean, they have an incarnate demon. Uh, they have all of the, guilty parties doing their ceremony there's literally no reason that they're lying in wait on the side like there are no defenses they're waiting for them that they need to wait to be weakened they're just hanging out so i do think that there's meant to be some sort of pleasure in their watching 
this this party, the sacred, you know, behemoth worship worshiping party. So violence turns out to be the answer to this problem in the town because what happens next um you know our movie is so coy with the judge's mysterious master plan how he's going to fix this infestation of demonic activity in the town he's so enlightened and so rational and he goes off to the city and he's political he's important he's an important man klaus he's very important um, but it turns out that this master plan is just stirring up a lynching party, uh, complete with torches, and then stabbing and burning a scary, very light teddy bear that our, you know, Chuck E. Cheese character. Apologies to Chuck E. Cheese for this reference. Uh, no apologies. No, I don't. I apologize for nothing. Right? Like, I was a little <laughs> bit scared of them as a kid. Anyway, true confessions. So... This seems crucial that the judge is so worldly, sophisticated, this enlightened from the Enlightenment civil servant. And his main idea is, let's let things get so bad that I can come back and just kill whomever I want. You know, we're going to solve this with the sword, in other words. And I don't know, I'm interested in your take, Klaus, as to whether this might be an intentional sort of message or moral in the film sitting here. Uh, but this is subversive that there's nothing clever, nothing, nothing interesting or intellectual about what's coming from this enlightenment figure, this stand in for rationality that actually he's empty of any ideas that would, that would solve this other than by brute force. What do you think? Well, I think we're, we're old boy graduate students in the humanities. So like the idea of the intention of the filmmakers is like sort of not always the most important thing. I kind of doubt it, but I have read some things they've said where they like, they are very conscious of the judge standing for all the things you said, like the state and the enlightenment. Uh, They don't say patriarchy. Their gender analysis is maybe not quite up and, you know, but it's all there. I, I think it just is subversive. I think it is. I, I think it's, yeah. it's, 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 you don't have to scratch too far beneath the paint to see what's going on here. Um, <laughs> but apparently in terms of this point of like violence being the solution, apparently the original ending, the original scripted ending was to have the judge and the militia just kill everyone in the village. Uh, <laughs> the studio, the studio execs were like, uh, maybe that's a little too dark in 1960 when the U S military is, is wiping out whole villages in Vietnam. Like it's maybe a little bit too close mm. on the nose, uh, for us right now. Um, yeah, that tracks though with the direction of the film. I wouldn't have been surprised if all the teenagers died. I mean, you know, we we're not holding back from the death of the bloody deaths of teenagers so far in this film. So uh, I could have easily seen it. I think like, and I think the teenagers and, and just everyone, so it wouldn't spread because you have this kind of infestation plague association with it. So yeah, um, because it's about like touch and like everyone keeps touching these uh, skeletal remains of uh, the demon behemoth or Peter's uncle or whatever it is, uh, <laughs> you know, in the fields. And, and we got to put a stop to this. Right. This is taboo. This is sacred. You can't touch this. Right, 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 right. Right. Can't touch this. Um, So part of what's interesting, getting back to our enlightenment stand-in figure, the judge, uh, part of what's interesting to me is how exactly he leaves rationality behind. 
So he's in this conversation with the local country doc who is called in to attend to one of the many ailing <laughs> patients. Um, I believe this is maybe Rosalind. I think when they, I think they have this conversation with the, the aunt, aunt because I think it's the aunt. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's a, a suggestion by the doctor that witchcraft may be behind what's going on here. But the judge, you know, dismisses that with quite a bit of contempt and declares that witchcraft is discredited. You know, we don't believe in that anymore. We, that's a silly superstition of the past. Uh, we've moved on from there. But then, you know, the judge begins to change his tune when he acknowledges that the fiend in the field, at least as R- Ralph described it, because remember, he never actually saw that, like, mangled skull, uh, looks a lot like the image in the book so that the country doc has. Now, this book is a very weird piece of the story. We went down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. It's actually an economics encyclopedia, a business encyclopedia, if you will, um, from the right time period. But suddenly we're flipping through, like, why does the doctor have this? And what does this have to do with practicing like, medicine? Look, look, totally it's an old book. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but you turn through and they're actually real pages from the actual book. Thank you, Google, Google Books. Um, uh, but then suddenly there's this obviously inserted page meant to look old timey, but does not. Uh, and in it, there's a picture of a kind of devilish, hairy, devilish horned uh, face um, with some text next to it that calls it the vision of St. Amon or I don't know, Amandus probably in Latin, but uh, Amon in French. And I looked high and low, and uh, we'll get more, we'll get into the details of that part of it later. But the point here is that this similarity between this image, the hairy, you know, demon head, and the monstrous face described by Ralph changes his mind. The doctor says, oh, you, the judge, can't possibly understand the ways of the country. You're just a city slicker. Uh, But I think this is where character development (laughs) was meant to take place. We're supposed to see some kind of arc from the enlightened aristocrat at the beginning who looks at this and is slowly convinced like, oh, actually something, something witchy is going on here. Something evil, something from our pre-enlightened past is bubbling to the surface here, who in the end is reduced to wielding a sword to combat evil. Yeah, it reminds me, so you're, 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 what I'm hearing is this idea that the judge represents the enlightenment, represents the state, um, but then when, whether it's character development or just expediencies, like, yeah, this demon stuff, maybe this will help. Um, <laughs> It reminds me of how he's not only just a stand-in for the Enlightenment, but he's also a stand-in for the absolutist state, which is also a thing at this point. And it reminds me of the way like uh, Jean Baudin, the French jurist, uh, could have like the sophisticated, uh, the sophisticated discourse about the structure of the law in uh, a sort of post-Reformation, post-wars uh, of religion Europe, and could also be like a theorist of witchcraft. And that the, you could you can be both, and I think this is something that we lose track of when we sort of make assumptions about the Enlightenment or make assumptions about modernity. That you could be both a kind of respectable civil servant, intellectual, and still believe in using the power of the state 
to violently suppress like religious minorities or women who have gotten out of line or that this sort of thing. Um, so it seems like it's an incongruity, but it's actually, it totally, it totally adds up. It does in a historical sense. Like that was, there was certainly room for that in the time period. Yes. But our character points us to that myth of the separation between the enlightenment and, you know, belief in witchcraft, I would say. We were talking about the Enlightenment age of absolutism. Uh, I like the timing of the plot, actually, as a theme. I think Wikipedia says that it was originally supposed to take place in the Victorian era, but there it was scrapped by the studio executives who were like, well, there's too many things in the Victorian era. But I think this is kind of a cool period to be working with because it's this transition between the Reformation and the Enlightenment. It's historically at the end of what historians call the witch craze when there was a massive amount of murders of women, mostly women, but some men um, around the idea that they were practicing witchcraft. Um, And not a coincidence, this is happening during a period of intense political and religious upheaval. So we can might see it very roughly as a way of externalizing all those tensions onto uh, embodiments of evil who are then scapegoated. To put it simply. But anyway, as the judge keeps on saying, we're all past that. Uh, except <laughs> except we're not. <laughs> um, I like that it's sort of an a, a time where there's sort of an overlap between like, you know, it's like, it's like that city-country thing. It's supposed to be enlightened in the city, but in the country, they're still lagging behind. It's like, it's, it's the way that a space instantiates and materializes uh, a kind of historical placement. Yeah, it, anyway. I'm really taken by this other film that could have been uh, this Victorian film, but I don't know how they would have made these explanations work at all. It's sort of curious to think about because I think, unsurprisingly, as a historian, I think that the moment in history where they set this film is integral to understanding the relationships, the beliefs uh, of this world that's been created. So I want to turn now a little bit to the politics. We've talked about the time period. How does that relate to the power of the state and the executive here? Because we have the state of exception with the judge promising Peter that the ju- he, the judge, will have to use extraordinary measures to wipe out the coven. This like last word that he spits out to Peter before his chariot you know, rolls off to the city where he has important things to do. He says, understand. I shall use undreamed of measures. And this is, of course, the prerogative of the sovereign, you know, to suspend normal law and just start killing and torturing enemies of the state because it's serving that higher purpose. You know, underlying that, we still have the divine right of kings. This is ordained that in order to uh, keep evil at bay, this sort of deeply moralizing power has to be invoked. And the attitude of people around it, of course, has to be one of reverence for any of this to function. Yeah, exactly. And this this gets into secularization theory, which doesn't mean principally getting rid of religion, uh, according to theorists like like the Nazi Carl Schmitt, but had this influential idea about secularization that it's a translation of theological concepts into political realities 
in modernity. So, right, we're seeing the ways in which the sovereign is sort of playing the god role, even if the judge is uh, a skeptic. He's stepping into this kind of patriarchal, quasi-divine role to dispense with justice, to not to not be held to any kind of legal standard, but to do whatever existentially needs to be done to secure whatever counts as safety. Uh, and so this kind of takes us to a key moment in the film, which is when the judge gathers together his lynching party uh, to go wipe out the coven. He's holding this it's he's holding or sometimes his servant is holding this like sort of big wrapped up ritual implement that looks like a cross wrapped in an altar cloth that's what it looked like to me and so the moment that you described before when the they finally get to the abandoned church uh also seems to be key to this film an abandoned church is the site of of where this all gets wrapped up uh abandoned by religion taken up by the by the state um he gets there and unwraps this thing that looks like a, a cross or a crucifix. And you're thinking, oh yeah, vampire vibes. Like it's going to be Dr. Watson or whatever. It's it's not a cross. It's a big sword, which of course is cruciform. It's in the shape of a cross, but it's a killing blade. It's not a ritual implement at all. Um, at least not the one we were expecting. And this is like the perfect metaphor for this idea of theology's translation into secular politics. It's... It's the the shape of what came before, but it's been weaponized and it's being used to inflict violence and and purging and cleansing. Right. So we don't have the curate, for example, coming in and praying away the gay. I mean, the witchcraft. I mean, whatever needs <laughs> is, is being demonized here. Instead, we have the symbols being borrowed by the state in you know which again fits perfectly into the narrative of what secularization theory is about that transfer of symbolic power um, to this other institution as it were okay so we've been talking about the judge as instantiating the secular theo-secular authority um we might stop and consider a little bit more the gender politics of the film and what the judge represents and what his antagonist angel blake represents in the film so yeah like how would you how should we start to unpack some of this stuff well some of it's really easy right angel is at one point a seductress and she's totally naked which also wow i mean 1970 right we get full frontal nudity amazing um but we fall into some pretty easy tropes of feminine wiles of the sexualization of imaginations and figurations of feminine evil, I suppose. Um, which is not to say that the feminine exists only in the female characters, like far from that. Um, but between the judge on the one hand, representing, as we've talked about the state, we also have patriarchy. We have masculinity um, of a certain variety, of a certain self-important variety as opposed to this charismatic form of evil that is youthful and beautiful that Angel um, harnesses to gather a community around her, a kind of anti-church, if you will. Yeah, like anti-structure, like some, yeah, for, yeah, totally. Like Victor Turner's idea of like, yeah, like the anti-structure, yeah. Sort of char charisma versus, versus bureaucracy kind of thing. That's marked by 
um, female leadership for one, which is very different from, you know, the curates who is, you know, curiously like a school marm. So interesting gender dynamics there, but this, this is the world of the feminine of the natural, et cetera, um, where angel rules over this, this community and has a kind of scary, absolute merciless power, um, which is also interesting. She, when, is it Kathy who's running away? And no, who is that character? This is after Kathy's death. Yeah, I know. I forget. I forget her name too. But yeah, she's she's in the trailer that that we just we heard at the beginning of the episode. She's she's billed as the devil's daughter. <laughs> so she's a, <laughs> she's one of the co- she's one of the coven members who um, gets captured and tortured or threatened to be tortured by the judge. Um, and yeah, uh, Angel just she gets caught in a bear trap that Angel laid. Okay. Um, also, favorite thing about Angel and her charismatic vampy authority is that at a certain point, she just starts appearing in the film with like eyebrows painted, oh, yeah, like, like in like slits, like so, like like what? <laughs> I mean, the like emphasis on eyebrows feels very 2020s, actually, or late 2010s. Um, the shape, I would say, a bit different. Um, they're sort of raised at the ends, um, the outside ends and then inside closer to the nose they kind of go down in a kind of scowl i suppose that's what we're meant to do with those eyebrows but they're amazing it looks like a mask yeah yeah Yeah. it does i don't really know what's happening there but it definitely it's a look let's just say that it's definitely a look um so that's a little bit about the judge versus angel and thinking about the complicated gender dynamics there um as they you know, sit within this larger symbolic universe having to do with religion and the state um, and counter-religion. We also have some other characters I think we should think about as we think about the gender dynamics of the film. One is Peter. Peter is this sort of disappointment uh, from the standpoint of the patriarchy. He's the nephew who is a fail just all around he's got this long foppish hair his sleeves which we've already discussed and he reads as this kind of overly passive femi character um you know you just you want to fix him you want to be like man up pete like step up dude <laughs> um but but that's just not his vibe you know he's got his ailing girlfriend he's always unable to come to the rescue of anyone. And so when it comes to sort of norms of masculinity and patriarchy, um, Peter is doesn't measure up. Um, he doesn't stand up to his snobby aunt who disapproves of his match to his fiance. Um, and then he lets his fiance get trapped in the attic by the bitch slapping duo of the judge and the aunt. There is a whole lot of slapping going on in that scene. That's one of my favorite parts is when the it's... aunt's trying to slap Rosalind and then the ju- immediately the judge starts slapping Peter. <laughs> and they're like, man, <laughs> generational conflict. Here. Right. It's like, ooh, trauma really is generational. Okay. Yeah. Wow. We're just yeah. going to see how that gets passed on from person to person here. Um, yeah. Talk, to, talk yeah. to us a little bit about Ralph. Klaus, what do you see in well, Ralph's masculinity? Like like Peter, Ralph has has like rolling locks of hair, though a bit more permed, a bit more curl in there. Um, yeah, true, true. <laughs> Ralph is like a good stout plowman. Um, he's the beau of Kathy. He he's he's like the sort of he's like the prize of like the hobbitlings who inhabit the court of <laughs> of this 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 sort of like country squire situation yeah. that was that's set in um but even though he is like strong and good and handsome and whatever 
uh, he also fails to come through in a lot of moments. From the very beginning, he can't persuade the judge to take him seriously. Um, he can't save Kathy from being uh, from being killed and and, and sacrificed to uh, the evil teddy bear. Um, he has to be saved in the end by uh, the voyeuristic judge. Uh, he's also rendered passive in a lot of ways. And I think we were something we were talking about before is like how apart from the judge, who's just a psychopath, uh, <laughs> uh, everyone else who is gendered um, masculine in this film kind of fails. It's, it's sort of showing, and I guess the, the judge's um, psychosis, or not psychosis is the wrong word, but his, his just sort of malevolence is its own failure. Um, and, you know, depending on how you want to read this, uh, the film almost seems to glorify him. You know, you see his face in the fire. It's like, oh, like justice has been rendered. Like the, the cleansing power of violence has been unleashed and the judge is triumphant. Um, great, man. Uh, but everyone else just like sort of is ineffectual um, and and victimized. I would argue that the judge is sort of a default, you know, patriarch you know, success, I suppose. But that final moment framing him with the flames, I think deeply doesn't work. I think we're meant to see this solving of the problem with a sword as a, as a form of failure. I don't, if it is a glorification, I think it's one that's deeply ambivalent. Um, I also feel like the way that he waits in the shadows, we've talked about the erotic elements of that, but I would also say that, um, he feels almost like a deus ex machina. Um, like oh, he yeah, disappears yeah. for so much of the film. Like, where have you been, my man? Like, come on now. And so there's a certain, it doesn't really ring true as any kind of model of successful masculinity. So I guess I would argue that through these, the characters we've talked about so far, you know, and who's the protagonist here? No one knows. Uh, Ralph, Peter, and the judge uh, nowhere do we see any kind of clear endorsement of traditional masculinity or patriarchy. Yeah. And what you just said reminded me of how I, I have a, like, again, it, not just because it's British, but Sherlock Holmes vibes. Like there, there are Sherlock Holmes stories where like Holmes disappears and kind of comes in as like a deus ex machina. And you're kind of yeah. getting that thing too. Like the Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah. Uh, the one I, the one I always quote on this show um, that happens um, it happens in other stories. Uh, but yeah, I think that's totally right. And uh, he feels right. Like he's not even a person. Um, and right to be like sort of the embodiment of a successful uh, masculinity, it seems in this film means to be not really a human being after all. Um, and I think that's that's what's going on a, a bit in part. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about... You know, this is a this is a devil pod as we as we always like to say it's a podcast about the devil. Um, the the demon who is the awful teddy bear is named as Behemoth. This also fits in in an interesting way to the theme of secularization and absolute power, um, because Thomas Hobbes's um, image of state power was the Leviathan. So um, the sequel, <laughs> the unofficial sequel to Thomas Hobbes' treatment of the modern state. Uh, which was Leviathan from the 17th century, his argument that the sovereign is this this monster that incorporates the will and consent and the social contract to form this this power that's a god on earth. Uh, the uh, Frankfurt School historian, sociologist, political scientist uh, Franz Leopold Neumann wrote 
a kind of sequel to this book, Behemoth, The Structure and Practice of National Socialism. Um, so the fact that the demon is named as Behemoth kind of reminds me of this sort of these different uh, references from the Hebrew Bible of monsters that get used to embody and represent state power. So that seemed interesting to me. Um, but Behemoth, like what, Travis, what even is Behemoth in the Bible? Like, like a big ox or something? Like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like Behemoth and Leviathan are paired as Leviathan as the sea beast and Behemoth as some sort of land beast in these yeah. like ancient mythologies. In fact, pre-biblical mythologies, we have this ju- these juxtapositions. So Canaanite so, religion or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. And so, you know, we do have some sort of land beast here that's represented, something hairy. It's, it doesn't have fins. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're on point, I suppose. Um, and we also have associations in the film with land and agriculture and pagan folk deities. So does it work, you know, loosely? Sure. Yeah. I think naming him behemoth is, is fine. I'm not like upset as, you know, a podcast historian of the devil about that, I would say. And it especially makes sense if the behemoth demon is also Peter's uncle. And if the judge murdered him and that's why he's in the field. In the field. These a botched okay. burial of the of the old representative of the state, and now the judge has totally usurped that role. Yes, and so the demon's behemoth because the demon is like not only the uh, the sort of pagan agricultural forces in play, but it's also an older state representative. I don't know. <laughs> I'm pre-associating. I, I think we have the, the makings of a prequel here, Klaus. So, yeah. you know, maybe we'll write that script next. Um, I love it. Also, just want to point to the uh, long and storied tradition of associating um, indigenous deities with demons that Christianity loves to do. We, have, we see that here again. So that's, that's, fun Oh, totally. Times, oh as yeah. Al- yeah. As always da- great hobby of Christianity. So yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great thing about, it's a great Christian move to say like, Oh, like the pagan gods of the Greek world and even of, of, of native American worlds were real. They were just really demons, you know. Um, <laughs> we're, we're not being caught that right in. We we oh. believe you. We believe you. It's just that that was the devil. <laughs> you just accidentally mistook God for the devil. It's no big deal. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, small small error. We're just going to correct that for you. Yeah. So just like to sort of finish up with a little bit of a reflection on what this demon is and looks like. Um. So the main plot, the master plan of Angel Blake, mischievous Angel Blake, is to gather together as much of the devil's skin as possible so they can put together the jigsaw puzzle um, and get this demon walking around on two feet. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. Angel Blake, are you saying she's sort of like a fallen angel almost, Klaus? Mm, Is that what you're saying? Yeah, maybe mm. that was what they had in mind. I don't know. Probably, Yikes. probably so. All right. All right. Um, along the way, we see the demon at, from time to time. And sometimes it seems like the demon is just an illusion. And we've talked about this in the podcast, how the demon's, they only work by tricking you. They only work through um, manipulating matter. They can't actually do anything bad to you. And that sort of checks out with Peter's like hand at amputation or what they're going to do to Ralph. 
Um, sometimes it is very physical. Like you see things coming out of the walls and stuff, or you see the teddy bear. Sometimes we get like this sort of like whirling, misty, spiritual thing. And so like, as kind of messed up as this film is, it does kind of play into some traditional Christian demonology where like people associate the fallen angels with like being the denizens of the gloomy air. And like this sort of like they're like the demons do have bodies. They're just like really thin and airy. And that kind of does play. You see, there is imagery that kind of fits with that in this movie. It also like manifests in the way that um, the judge who's represented as sort of an old portly fellow wielding a giant sword in probably is able to like <laughs> impale the demon, hoist it up. Like it's like, so it's perpendicular with the ground and then throw it on the fire. Yeah. I'm like, this guy could not have done this to like a small child, <laughs> let alone a giant bear gorilla. So there's a lightness and airiness to the evil stuffed animal, which he's impaled and tossed on the fire. So that actually checks out like pretty well with some stuff we've learned about demonology in this this podcast. Yeah. So what happens right after he throws him on the fire? Is there some sort of big like barbecue? I don't know. Uh, it just ends. Yeah. They don't. They don't. They don't get out their marshmallows. They just. They, would you want to toast marshmallows over the uh, the furry fiend's uh, burning body? Like probably not. But the, maybe the judge is up for that. I don't know. I mean, if I had a choice, no. But I really do enjoy s'mores. So it's. I, I'm not going to promise you that I wouldn't do it, Klaus. So, anyway, <laughs> uh, happy Halloween, everyone, uh, and thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.